back to that passage if you want to put something in there to hold on to that. But now we're going to turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14, you're going to pick up at verse 26. It's page 538 as we take a day off from our series in Ecclesiastes. So we're going to pick up at Proverbs 14, verses 26 through 35, but my whole sermon is going to be basically verse 34. In the fear of the Lord, in the fear of Yahweh, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. What I've read to you from 1 Timothy 2 and from Proverbs 14 is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord God Almighty, who sits enthroned above the heavens, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and whose kingdom endures from generation to generation, come, come and reorient our hearts, our alliances, and our allegiances this day that we may always keep our patriotism in its proper place. We ask this through Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of a worship guide, and you will notice there are no points because there's only one point. (laughs) But there are two quotations that I'll get to momentarily. And then there's some questions at the bottom for this afternoon, maybe during lunch. So the first quotation, American uh, uh, Richard John Newhouse was um, on his close to dying when he wrote his last book, American Babylon, a very impactful book. And then he died before it was published. And so he wrote these words in there, and you'll see it. And it uses some big words, and I'll try to explain them here. American theology has suffered from an ecclesiological deficit. Ecclesiological means the theology of the church. American theology has suffered from a deficit in church theology, leading to an ecclesiological substitute of America for the church through time. Now, I think it's a great statement. I've actually said it more than once in my own Mike Philiberish ways. And it is a cautious thing we need to be aware of. We need to be cautious and careful that we do not conflate the United States of America with the church of Jesus Christ. And that happens a lot, and you will see it probably going on today through many churches and many of our brothers and sisters where they co-opt God's worship for nation worship. Sometimes you hear it in the misuse of Scripture. The one that's an easy target, because I've heard it so many times misused, is from 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Now the passage is true, we just misapply it and often say, well, that's about America. No, it's not. It's about the church of Jesus Christ. 
Don't conflate the two. And so today, we're going to actually look at a passage, Proverbs 14, 34, that really honestly does apply to the nation. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now that truism, that verse, that truism is short, sweet, and simple. The verse is compact, it is straightforward, it's a matter-of-fact observation. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You could effortlessly take that verse and tweet it on Twitter. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Sorry. That was my funny, sorry. The devil, though, is in the application. And so to help us with some of the application, you can't get to all of it, but with just a little bit of the application, let me address three themes. First off, dear friends, and many of us will say yes to this when we hear these words, it's in the applying that it becomes an issue. As Christians, we have a dual citizenship. We we are citizens of two realms. We understand that we're citizens of the country that we're in, but Paul the Apostle says in a couple of different places things like this, like in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now remember that The Philippians were highly patriotic. Many of them were retired military members, like I am. They were highly patriotic. So notice that Paul's language is very insightful when he says in verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the power which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Our citizenship is being held and reserved in heaven. And then again he'll say it in Ephesians chapter 2. When he's talking to the Ephesians there in verse 19 and 20, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christians have a dual citizenship. And in our dual citizenship then, one of them must of necessity be held to more loosely than the other. One of those citizenships is ultimate. One of them is penultimate. Just one or two steps below or three steps below the ultimate. One is ultimate, the other is not. One we must hold to loosely, the other We are to hold to because it is permanent and indestructible. That was the major point that St. Augustine wrote about in his tome, The City of God. Yes, this is the book. You know, you could use this as a self-defense weapon. It's so big. You could smack people with it. It took him 14 years to write the book, The City of God. He wrote it over that 14 years with Rome as the primary place that he lived and and the, the government that he was dealing with. And as he writes the book, he lays out this dual citizenship well, and he points out that the city of man, that's what he calls it, the city of man is our earthly country, our earthly citizenship, and that city of man is intermingled with the citizens of the city of God. We live here, but we have a supreme citizenship that's always significant and primary to us. My friends, keeping those two citizenships and loyalties distinct is a hard, hard task. It is too stinking easy to fall off the horse on one side or the other. 
On the one side, you hear it in Christian nationalism where this is a Christian nation and this is kingdom for this is Jesus' kingdom and yada yada yada. That's falling off the horse on this side. Or you have the other extreme that goes the other way that wants to have nothing to do with the civil realm and goes and sets up enclaves to be totally separate from all the nation, the nation, the city, the state, and all of that. You have two far extremes because it's too easy to fall off that horse. It's a hard task to keep those citizenships and loyalties distinct. So this may be controversial for some, and I'm not asking you to agree with me, but I'm giving you the reason for this, that your elders from long past and even to the present have agreed with. It is one reason why we do not have an American flag in the sanctuary. It was that way when I got here. When I talked to Sean Young. He said it was that way since clear back in 2003, 2004, and for all the reasons that I actually agree with that. In Francis Schaeffer's book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, which he wrote in the 1970s, he makes a case for this very thing. He sensibly observes that having the American flag up next to the pulpit and the baptismal font and the communion table indicates to our young people and to our visitors and to others that we actually have two equal intertwined maybe confused loyalties. That bringing our visual symbol of patriotism, the American flag, to stand equal with the visual symbolism of Christianity, word and sacraments and prayer, portrays, portrays that the country and Christianity are synonymous. And that's a problem. I, I, I think most of you would agree with that. So Schaefer's ultimate concern in that book was that the day would likely come when our own country might become the church's enemy. And so we need to preach, teach, and display that the state is actually below the sovereign God so that our people have no doubts as to who deserves first place loyalty. As Moose often reminds us, as he's quoting Jesus, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. That's the point. It's biblical. And so he says this in his book, and this is your second quotation. It must be taught that patriotic loyalty must not be identified with Christianity. As Christians, we are responsible under the lordship of Christ in all of life to carry the Christian principles into our relationship to the state but we must not make our country and Christianity to be synonymous. We have a dual citizenship. That's the first thing we need to remember. Secondly, we're still citizens of this country nonetheless. Now, I'm looking out, and I don't know, but it looks to me like probably almost all of you, if not all of you, were born into this citizenship. There may be someone who's been naturalized, but still it's, this, it's going to end up in the same place. And so God in his providence, notice, did not ask you if you wanted to be born in this country. He didn't say, Lee, do you want to be born an American? He didn't say, Stephanie, you want to be born in the United States of America? He just did it. He simply orchestrated our forefathers' movements and migrations, and voila, here we are. 
And for many of us, what that should remind us of is that our earthly citizenship is a gift given to us by God. It is a stewardship. It's a gift given and a stewardship. What does it mean? That means that we can't just ignore it. We can't just throw it aside. We're to be engaged with it. That means that one or two of you need to become police officers. Maybe one or two of you might need to become judges, county commissioners, mayors, governors. Right? It means you take responsibility for this in some way. And most of us probably aren't called to be any of those things. But that's exactly what our Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, is that all of those offices, civil offices, are ours to go involve ourselves in because this citizenship, this earthly citizenship is a gift, a stewardship from God. And so we will all be answerable to God for how we have used or misused or unused this citizenship gift. So first, we're dual citizens. We have a dual citizenship. Secondly, we are citizens of this country. Thirdly, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is righteous. Now I'm beginning to look at this verse specifically. Righteousness exalts a nation. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is righteous. For example, in Jeremiah 33, 16, he is called Yahweh Tzikainu, the Lord our righteousness. You heard in the call to worship as Alan was reading it from Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in all the earth, for in these I delight. So the Lord is righteous, and he delights in righteousness being exhibited on terra firma, on this firm earth. Or then again, in Psalm 146, do not trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord uh, watches over the strangers. The Lord loves the righteous. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down, etc. Or then again in Revelation 15. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The Lord is righteous himself. The Lord exercises and executes righteousness. He takes delight in righteousness being exhibited. And so then, the righteousness that exalts a nation in some way mirrors and echoes and reflects the character of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The righteousness that exalts a nation in some ways mirrors the character of God the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and echoes his own righteousness. All of this then brings me to my crucial point. 
Christians should and ought to desire for our country the positive side of Proverbs 14.34 that it's declaring. Righteousness exalts a nation. We We ought to desire that for our country, if for no other reason, because of the dire results in the last half of the verse. Sin is a reproach to any people. My friends, we should pray, and we should work, for a civil righteousness that reflects in some ways God's own righteousness and that exhibits it. That's what we should be doing. But I must forewarn you. This means that a civil righteousness that reflects God's righteousness will likely tick off, disturb, and anger our fellow independents, our fellow Democrats, our fellow Libertarians, and yes, our fellow Republicans. Now, you might be sitting there asking at this point, what, pray tell, would that righteousness look like that would likely tick them off and disturb them? My party wouldn't be ticked off because we're the closest thing to the kingdom of Jesus. Well, just think about the second half of the Ten Commandments. You know, we read the Ten Commandments before the confession of sin. Just think about the second half of the Ten Commandments, what's often called the second table of the moral law. Honor your parents. Show them due respect. Take care of them. That's going to tick off somebody in your party. No adultery. I guarantee that one's going to get a few a little ruffled. No murder. Eh, We're probably okay there, but then maybe not. No stealing. No false witness bearing or slandering. No covetousness or envy. And there are positive ways that we're supposed to act out those commandments. If there's no adultery, then we're to be promoting chastity amongst those who are not married and a monogamous relationship between one man and woman as long as they both shall live. If we're not to murder, then we're to be promoting life. If we're not stealing, then we're promoting private property. If we're not bearing false witness, then we are preserving truth and we're preserving our neighbor's good name. And if we're not covetousness, covetous or envious, then we are content. Surely you heard in there somewhere something that's liable to tick off somebody because I guarantee it already has done so more than once. John Calvin and Martin Luther both said there were three uses of the law, the moral law, and that this is the first use. That the first use of the law is as a curb, a curb restraining social evil and national malevolence. If you want to pray for righteousness that exalts a nation and you want to work toward it, this is the kind of thing it's going to look like and it's going to tick some people off, people that you voted for. It happens. Now, my friends, we would rejoice. We would rejoice, I would hope, with noisy jubilation if these United States of America bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should pray for this. And we should yearn for the day when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2 put it. 
but what is immediately indispensable is that is that civil but also personal and also communal and also familial that's a fancy way to say family right familial righteousness civil personal communal familial righteousness would gain the upper hand look again at first timothy chapter 2 notice how Tim, paul puts it to timothy First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You will not live, dear friends, in a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, unless there's some sense of civil righteousness that actually reflects God's righteousness. So Paul goes on, this is good and it's pleasing to God who desires all people to be saved, etc. And so, dear friends, righteousness does exalt a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Therefore, brothers and sisters, tomorrow when you put your flag out, and I hope you do, I've got mine out and have had it out since Memorial Day. When you attend patriotic celebrations and do. When you set off fireworks, hopefully legally and safely. When you stand at that rally with your hand over your heart. When you hear the national anthem. Please do four things. First off, give thanks. Give thanks for where you are and what you have. Brothers and sisters, I lived in a country for two years. I saw it with my own eyes. They declared that they had freedom of press, freedom of religion, and freedom of speech. They declared it and branded it over everything while they were hauling away journalists to prison who actually spoke against their government, while they hauled Christians to jail simply because they were trying to tell someone about Jesus. I know what it's like to live in that kind of country, and you don't live there. Thank God. And so thank God for what you have and where you live. Tomorrow, give thanks to the Lord. But secondly, don't whitewash our national sins. For there are many, but do show grace. Don't whitewash our national sins all the way through the past. For there are many, but do show grace. Standing here at a distance, looking back to the past, there are two ways that we often will go. Sometimes we become too dreamy-eyed and idolize our past. Maybe George Washington was up with Moses on Mount Sinai and it came down with stone tablets, right? We become too dreamy-eyed and idolize the past. The problem with I see going on in America right now is that The other extreme, we become pharisaical and damn the past. Well, they had slaves, therefore they are not to be honored in any possible way. Or just put whatever other national sin you want to put in there. My friends, neither of those, neither of those is healthy and neither of those is Christian. Neither of those is healthy, neither of those is Christian. I love the song we sang. 
before our confession of sin in 713, our father's sins were manifold and ours no less we own. What a great way to put it. You can look back on the past, you can damn the past, but just understand your grandchildren, great-grandchildren will damn your time because we are idiots. We sin too. And we have national sins right now. And so, don't whitewash our national sins, but do show grace. What is it in the past that we can... um, Uh, uh, what we can do is honor what rightly should be honored while humbly learning from our ancestral failures. None of our forebearers were demigods with shining crowns and very few of them, if any, had horns and cloven hooves, let the hearer understand. And so embrace the history of this country so that we can know who we were Here and now I'm stealing a line from David McCullough. So that we can know who we were, that we can see who we are and where we could go. So give thanks. Don't whitewash the past national sins, but do show grace. Thirdly, tomorrow, make the day a day of prayer. A day of prayer in your homes, a day of prayer in your heart. A prayer, praying that nation-exalting righteousness would win the day in our country. And that people reproaching sin would be subdued. Pray. And here I'm going to go back through the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. Echoing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Pray. That our fellow citizens and residents inside these borders. Will honor their parents and all legitimate authorities. Instead of abusing their aging parents or disrespecting their teachers, or revolting against law enforcement officers. Pray that the people of this country would turn away from murder, euthanasia, abortion, gang-banging violence, mass murder, suicides in schools. Or as the catechism goes on to say, and whatsoever tendeth thereunto. I love that line. And instead, that we would pursue all lawful endeavors to preserve life. Pray that the citizens and the immigrants in the land would come to renounce sexual immorality, whether it's the virtual adultery of cyber sex, hooking up multiple divorce, remarriage situations, etc., etc., etc. And instead, we would embrace chastity. And we would embrace a lifelong monogamy of one man and one woman. Pray that the inhabitants of our nation would cast aside stealing in all of the ways that it unjustly hinders our own and our neighbor's wealth and outward estate, and that instead we would engage in legitimate ways of advancing, of advancing our own and our neighbor's lawful prosperity. Pray that the folks within our borders would discard all false witness-bearing and slander, whether by email or blog or through talk radio or in courts, or through personal conversations, and instead we would become a people who promote truth and our neighbor's good name. Pray that we, one and all, would stop hungering and hankering after our neighbor's wives, husbands, property, and prosperity, and that we would grow instead in charitableness and full contentment with our condition. 
And if you want help in praying those prayers, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 63 through 81, 63 through 81 is a good place to begin. Dear friends, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So first, give thanks. Secondly, don't whitewash our past national sins, but do show grace. Third, pray. Fourth, remember. Remember that all of this begins. This national righteousness, this righteousness that exalts a nation, that all of this righteousness actually begins right there. Right here. Inside my skin. Inside your skin. In our homes. In our lives. Which then brings us around to one of the other uses of the law that Calvin and Luther talked about, that the law drives us to Christ. You know, as we pray these things for our nations, our own self-righteous hypocrisy should melt away. I mean, don't answer me, okay? But do you honor your parents and all other legitimate authorities? Do you murder with your hands or your words? Do you commit adultery virtually or in the flesh or other forms of sexual morality? Do you steal? Do you slander others? Do you envy and crave for what others have? And all of us, if we have any honesty, should say, Now you've gone from preaching to meddling, preacher. Yes, you're right. I have failed at some of these things or all of them. And if that's the case, and I'm talking about you and me, if that's the case and it is the case, then you and I are the problem. You and I are not only the problem, part of the problem for our nation, but we are also a part of the problem for ourselves before God. And so you may be asking, well, who will deliver me from this body of of death? As Paul put it. Well, it's right back there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Down there in verse 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So as you pray this prayer, as you think about the law and what righteousness really looks like, and you find you've fallen short, Don't just sit there and go, well, run to Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And there you will find him cleansing you, making you right with God, pulling you in and reminding you of the fellowship you have with God. And that he's given you the Holy Spirit and is already beginning to change you. And you grow more and more into the very righteousness you're praying for. And so, dear friends, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we come to you grateful, deeply grateful for where we live. I know most of the folks here in this room have never lived in a long period of time in another country to see what others, most other humans, don't have. But I pray that you would work in all of our hearts this deep, deep sense of gratitude. 
Would you pray for our country, Lord? We pray for a nation exalting righteousness to win the upper hand here and start with us. We pray that the, the, the nation reproaching, the people reproaching sin would decrease and be losing out. Lord, we want the best for our country. We want the best for our neighbors who live next door to us, who live in our neighborhood. We want the best. And so this is why we pray for that righteousness that exalts a nation to prevail. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Let our cry come unto you. Amen.